0: We are having the first futurist I've ever interviewed, uh, Steve Brown, who is the author of The Innovation Ultimatum, if you haven't seen Steve's book. Uh, and it is a terrific book. I really enjoyed reading it. Steve? Hey, how are you doing? Excellent. Excellent. Boy, you've got a lot of books behind you. You know, always be selling, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, Steve. Before you t- we talk about the book, tell us a little about what you do full-time. And is this the first book you've written?
1: It's the second book I've written, but the first proper book, I would say. I wrote a book about the future of retail uh, about six years ago. It turned out to be pretty precious, so I was quite happy. But this is the first proper big boy book. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so what is a, I'm a futurist? So what is a futurist? Um, I'm, a, I'm an applied futurist, which means I help businesses to model what will be possible in a certain time frame, and then to build plans on how to move towards uh, what they want to build.
0: And, and you do this for large corporations, uh, all size companies, all industries?
1: All sizes, you know, everything from, my biggest client was 1420, uh, but I do stuff for, you know, not quite mom and pop, but certainly trade associations and smaller groups, uh, local charities, that kind of thing. Uh, and where are you located? I'm based in Portland, Oregon, but I work all over the planet, uh, Asia, Europe, all the way across North America. And w- what did you go to school for that made you a futurist? I did a couple of degrees in microelectronic systems engineering. So uh, designing chips and writing software. I couldn't do either of those to save my life now, but that's what I did back in the day when I still had hair.
0: <laughs> well, um, so um, you've know, you had a very interesting background. The book is super interesting. Uh, Tell us, why did you write this book?
1: You know, um, when I was working with leaders, uh, it didn't matter the industry, working with groups and leaders, managing teams, um, it became very clear that the pace of technological change had outstripped leaders' ability to understand uh, what that meant to their business. And, you know, it's, it's not fair for a chief medical officer of a hospital uh, or a CMO of a, of a uh, hotel chain uh, to know everything there is to know about AI and how it will affect their business. So I realized that there was a gap and uh, that book was designed to fill it. It's, it's a how-to guide for leaders and wannabe leaders on um, technology innovation.
0: Uh, in the book, you mentioned six technologies that will be driving the economy. What are they and how will they affect the economy?
1: Um, Well, artificial intelligence uh, is the first one, probably the biggest and most important of them. Uh, That's going to make businesses more efficient through automation. It's going to elevate talent by supporting people in the jobs that they do. And I think it's going to create a lot of new economic value as an ingredient in a whole new generation of smart products and services. So it is going to create a lot of economic value just because of all of the new things we'll be able to do with it. Uh, blockchain is the second technology uh, that enables you to create value in new ways, in a, in a very distributed way. Um, so, you know, I met a guy who was building a whole new payments company. He had six real employees and a hundred sort of virtual employees who were all working on this blockchain product uh, in a very distributed way, and they were being paid in tokens as they created value in the companies. So it's just an interesting new economic model. Uh, The third technology is the Internet of Things. Uh, That's really about using sensors uh, and and computing and connectivity to improve process automation and efficiency and get cost savings. So again, economic value, but on the the, um, bottom line. Um, Autonomous machines is the next one. That's really uh, a broad category that includes everything from robots and cobots and drones to autonomous vehicles of all kinds. So that for the economy will bring more efficient movement of goods, so self-driving trucks and delivery trucks, uh, and ultimately um, self-sailing ships. Um, Automation, so efficiency and cost savings on the automation side again. Um, And what it means is we're gonna have to take the displaced employees, and there will be some, and retrain them to avoid any economic impact on the downside of that one. Fifth one is augmented reality. That's about creating new work experiences, augmented work, which we can talk about later. Uh, And I think it's probably it's the next trillion dollar marketplace of products and services. uh, The same way that you know these these things, mobile phones created a whole new market for us all to play in. Augmented reality is that next one. The final technology um, is five just new networks, five G and satellite networks. Satellite networks, in particular, are going to connect the next 4 billion people. They're also going to connect rural communities with broadband and start to reduce the digital divide, giving more people access to connectivity. That's going to enable more remote uh, or anywhere workers. And what that's going to do is it's going to project wealth creation into those communities because people will be able to now work in pretty good-paying jobs and work from anywhere on the planet. So they'll be spending in local communities all around the world as a result. So those six technologies, pretty powerful, gonna create a lot of value in the next decade.
0: So let's talk about augmented reality. When I think of that, I kind of think of either I'm sitting in Philadelphia and I get to visit Paris, or (laughs) I'm thinking about games. But where do you see the real value of augmented reality and how is that going to affect us from a commercial? Standpoint.
1: Yeah, so it's important to draw a distinction between virtual reality, which immerses you in a complete 100 percent digital reality. That's when you take that trip to Paris or you're playing video games. Um, augmented reality blends your view of the physical world and inserts objects, information uh, into that view. So you're not cut off from the physical world around you. That means it's far more useful in a work context. Because now I can add a layer of information or guidance for a worker to show them what to do next, to give them information, to help them make faster decisions and so on. So augmented reality, it's much harder to do because as you move your head, the objects that have been placed in the world around you need to stay in the same place. It's a big computing problem to solve. And that's why it's slower to come to market. Uh, than virtual reality. When it does, that will be the next big breakthrough and create a whole new era of what I call augmented work, where now an AI can guide a worker and show them what to do next step by step. And you're creating this blend, this hybrid of human intelligence and machine intelligence working in partnership together. That's a huge breakthrough. So, So what industries are going to use augmented reality? I mean, who's really going to take advantage of that? You know, I don't think there'll be many industries that ultimately don't use it. Um, But the most obvious ones are construction. Um, I mean, really any place where people primarily work with their hands or in fast-moving mobile environments. So think construction workers, agricultural workers, retail workers, surgeons. uh, And if you look at how many people that is, that's about 80% of the workforce. So computing today... Even tablets and phones, you, know, you have to hold them in your hand. So if you're working in a hands-free environment, uh, it's just not computing that works for you. So this is gonna be computing for the rest of us, and it's gonna give you know, the ability to control computing with, with gestures, with your voice, and get the information you need to help you be more productive and efficient.
0: So does that mean like, uh, would that apply to colleges that maybe kids aren't having to be at the actual schools that they go to? with augmented reality, you actually feel like you're at Harvard? (laughs)
1: Uh, You know, I I don't think there's anything that will replace the experience of feeling like you're at Harvard, right? There are reasons that people go to school that are not just about learning stuff in a classroom. It's about learning how to, you know, be a person and learning how to connect with other people uh, and finding out more about yourself. But certainly for distance learning, and I think in education Uh, digital learning will be a component of education going forward even when coronavirus is a distant memory it's still going to be there and it's it's a way of helping students to learn in different ways some students learn very visually particularly if you're learning uh, medicine you know being able to see a, a, a person floating in the room as if they're there and pull them apart and look under their skin and look at their circulatory system and vascular system, it's a pretty amazing experience. So I think, yeah, it will help people in education significantly. Could, could that mean that the
0: surgeon could actually, let's say that I'm a top tier uh, uh, vascular surgeon and I'm in Philadelphia and somebody needs my help in Paris. Does that mean I could actually work on them from there or? or somebody actually do the work, but they're following my lead? How, how would that work?
1: Yeah, I mean, to do remote surgery, you need to have very low latency, which means when I move my hand or control here, it, you know, a fraction of a second later, it's happening in Paris. Uh, that's where 5G and actually satellite communications will help. Um, signals move faster through the vacuum of space, so if they go up to a satellite and go across and then down again, than they do through a fiber optic cable underneath Uh, the the Atlantic Ocean, for example. So that combination of satellite communications with low latency communications and augmented reality, yeah, I think is going to make remote surgery certainly more common and allow a surgeon to spread their expertise uh, much further than just their local hospital that they work in.
0: I mean, the internet's kind of started all this just like um, Friedman wrote in his book, The World is Flat. Uh, This is really what's happened now because of the internet, you're able to do things anywhere in the world. I have a friend of mine, she has a company of 18 people and she moves to a different country every year and none of her people go to an office. And so she's able to do that. And it sounds like to me with all these technologies that are coming up and certainly because of the speed of the internet, this is allowing us to do all of this.
1: Yeah, I think you're seeing this question happen now in... In many companies, certainly a lot of the ones I'm talking to right now, they're having this debate over are we now an office first company as we were or do we become remote first? Meaning that the default is that people work from home and that they come together in the office when they need to brainstorm on something or they want to connect as a team and, and bond and gel before they start a project or you know, there are reasons for people to still come together. You know, obviously social distancing is an issue right now, but once this is behind us, people will still want to come together to collaborate. I think that will be true, but the default position may be that people work remotely because that myth that you couldn't be productive at home has been exploded by the coronavirus.
0: And how is COVID changing everything now in your mind, especially as it applies to these technologies? I mean, if there was no internet, the entire world would be underwater. Um, because a lot of us can work yeah. and, and the economy still gets gets to roll on. But 20 years ago, if this had happened, 10 years ago, if this had happened, it would have been hugely devastating to this. So how was COVID yeah. affecting this?
1: Well, I think it's revealed a number of things. So first is the, the value in being a digital first company. If you have you know, significant investment already in digital channels, a digital customer journey, um, you know, the ability for your employees to work remotely, or at least a number of them to work remotely, that makes you more resilient as a company through a time like this. So companies that are that pre-invested in digital are seeing, are reaping the benefits of that. Um, what it's doing as a result is as employees, as, as businesses have figured this out, they are doubling down and they're realizing that they need to continue to invest in this because it's going to make their businesses stronger. And so what I am seeing is that COVID has been the great accelerator. It's accelerating a lot of things that were going to happen anyway, but businesses that had a three to five year plan to invest in, you know, some new digital capability and digital transformation effort are dusting those plans off and saying, how can we do them this year? How can we accelerate our plans and move more quickly in that direction to automate, to help our employees work remotely and so on.
0: So, uh, what powerhouses today will flourish and which ones will disappear? Because you know, in our lifetime, uh, Bethlehem Steel was once a power, General Electric was once a power, Wang Laboratory, Smith Corona Typewriter. You know, We can make a list. In fact, I think out of the original Fortune 500, I think there's only two or three companies that exist today. So w- which ones are gonna be winners and which ones do you think are gonna be struggling?
1: Yeah, so I'm not going to pick names. Um, I'm not going to name names. Or industries, yeah. I get asked to do that a lot. So I'll I'll just say more generally, um, here's the issue. The gap between companies that invested in technology and those that didn't has always been there. But that gap is going to widen significantly in the coming decades. So companies that embrace technology to drive innovation into all that they do and to create competitive advantages for themselves are going to be the ones that flourish, and then the ones that don't um will not be now you have to remember that the web was invented in 1990 and 30 years later you know every industry now must be internet first or they die there's just you know this is a race for relevance in a, a rapidly changing and increasingly digital world and those that don't have the um i guess it's the fortitude the uh, the willingness to invest ahead and invest a higher percentage of their revenue into IT projects that make them stronger and more competitive as a, as a business are the ones that will fail. So conservative companies, unfortunately are not going to be around 10, 15 years from now.
0: Do you find that uh founder CEOs are more likely to invest in the future than people who inherit the companies, you know, like where they may have worked their way up or uh, you always find a lot of companies, the boards feel more comfortable, Hiring, uh, putting a finance guy uh, in charge of the business. You know, we saw with Apple when they booted jobs out and a series of guys who were basically, you know, some were marketing, but mostly finance, and Apple almost went under. And we saw this with a, a lot of other companies as well. Microsoft uh, was the same. So, are they more likely to embrace all these new technologies, the found founder CEOs, as opposed to ones who inherit?
1: Typically, yes, because almost by definition, a founder CEO is building a new company designed to do something new for the marketplace. Uh, And I've found that the the strongest companies, the ones that I have invested in, uh, have a pair. So they have a Steve Jobs type who's the visionary, who, who thinks of the big thoughts, and then you have a great operations person that can translate that into actions and make things happen. So yeah, I think founders tend to embrace technology more to have more interesting visions for the future. But you have to pair them with someone who keeps their feet on the ground. You know, a finance person to watch count the pennies and an operation person to make sure that it all happens. H-
0: hence why Steve uh, Jobs and Tim Cook were such a great dynamic team. You got it, yeah. Um Should we fear or welcome artificial intelligence? Because I have to tell you, I, ha- I have a little bit of fear that's going to wipe out a lot of non-college educated jobs in service fields and I hear people who invest in this say you know not to worry we're going to pay everybody who wants to work $25 an hour but it's not like the Jetsons you know um, if something if this takes over your job there's no need for you and and companies are always looking for ways to be what they say is more efficient but really it's just more profitable and and get rid of these jobs so I guess people worried about that a hundred years ago too when they started to build um automation and manufacturing companies as well. So what's your take on this?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's a big question, it's a common question. So um, a few thoughts. So certainly AI is a very powerful technology and uh, it, it is going to enable us to automate jobs that previously we could not automate. So it, it, it certainly starts to encroach on jobs that were human only jobs, and now they're gonna be you know, something that robots or AIs can do too. And that's going to mean competition between humans and robots, um, in some limited areas. Now, there are studies that say that maybe 30% of jobs in the next 20 years or 50% of jobs in the next 20 years will be at risk of being replaced by technology. But a couple of thoughts there. Um, first of all, there's a study in the UK by Pricewaterhouse that says that AI will displace 7 million jobs in the UK in the next couple of decades. Seven million jobs is a lot out of a workforce of maybe 30, 35 million people. Um, But they also say that in the same study, AI will create 7.2 million jobs in that same timeframe. So while it is destructive, it is creating new jobs. Now the question is, what's the difference in the skills that you need to do the new jobs versus the old jobs that were destroyed? And really, if AI puts a lot of people out of work, that's on us all of us as a society because this is a process that always happens we, we use technology it destroys old jobs and creates new ones we need to help people transition into those new roles and so we need to invest in both education but also augmentation technology so that a worker let's say somebody who is a truck driver for 40 years you know they've got another five years they want to work uh, they can put on a pair of glasses and become a robot repair person, just like that. Because that combination of the, the magic glasses that shows them what to do, they can be trained in the moment and be productive still because they bring something that a robot still doesn't have, which is amazing dexterity uh, and, and you know, experience and emotion and, and all of those things that make us uniquely human. So should we fear or welcome AI? I think we should be cautious about it We should be thoughtful about it, but we shouldn't fear it because it's just a natural evolution of technology improving. A lot of the jobs that will be replaced are dangerous, dirty, unpleasant, repetitive, boring jobs. The jobs that will be created are going to be a lot more interesting. We just need to make sure people are prepared to be able to do them.
0: I I have to say, I think that AI has come along at a really good time for us because with COVID, it's going to shorten the period of time it takes to actually develop a drug. Uh, that's going to come up, but would you agree with that?
1: AI has an an amazing set of applications. So not only is it being used to try and find therapeutics and develop new drugs and vaccines, doing all the protein folding work to understand how all of these systems work in the body, it's also being used on the diagnostic side. So I I know of two different companies. One of them, uh, Vocalis Health, they are able to hear disease in your voice. So they've already been successfully, they've worked with the Mayo Clinic. They can hear um, chronic heart failure, coronary artery disease, sleep apnea, and COPD, just from the sound of your voice. And they are working on a a diagnostic that will be able to hear COVID-19 in your voice and diagnose that. And long-term, they think they'll be able to hear cancer and hypertension and diabetes in your voice. So there's all kinds of breakthrough technologies based around AI that will dramatically change the healthcare landscape in the coming decade or
0: two. But they're also able to match up drugs and do all kinds of experimentation that speeds everything up. I mean, you had great examples in your book about uh, what AI can do. And some of it was disconcerned, but some of it was uh, amazing. Uh, You know, on the legal field, you talked about the fact that it could take 90 minutes for a lawyer to go over a, a document and they, and they could do it in 24 seconds or 26 seconds. Yep. Uh, the, uh, the
1: speed. You which did read was, all my book. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Read the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's like, it's a company called law geeks in Israel. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so I told that story and so the story is it's, it's a, it's an AI that was put up against 20 human lawyers and the average human lawyer took about 90 minutes to look through five non-disclosure agreements. And just find things that, you know, any good lawyer would say, no, I'm, I'd strike that. I'm not, not signing up for that. Um, the law geeks um, a- AI found those errors as accurately as one of the best lawyers um, in 26 seconds. Now, I told that story to a, the International Society of Barristers, and I expected it would be like farting in church, right? Mm-hmm. The room would go quiet. But they were thrilled with the idea. Now, why is that? It was because no person goes to law school hoping, you know, I can't wait to review that NDA today, right? They want to do higher value, higher um, build work. Um, And so to to offload that to an AI, so they can still bill for that, uh, but to offload it so they can focus on other more interesting tasks, they were all about it. So there were cheers and claps in the room when I told them that story.
0: And plus it saved them on liability issues, because uh, if I remember correctly from the book, the AI did it, um, got it right ninety-three percent of the time, and the lawyers at best got it right eighty-five percent of the time.
1: Yeah, the worst lawyer was sixty-three percent. The average lawyer was eighty-five, and then the best lawyer was the same level as the AI.
0: Uh, which technologies do you feel will bridge the gap for uh, neuro device population to lead a better uh, quality of life? So I said again, Mark. Um, The question is, which technologies you feel will bridge the gap for uh, neurodiverse population to lead a better quality
1: of life? Oh, that's a good question. Um, You know, I think the biggest one is just to connect more people. Um, The more we connect people to each other, the more we learn about each other, the more uh, we interact with each other in meaningful ways, uh, the, the more we bridge gaps. And so to me, it will be that satellite communications, those satellite constellations that are going up this decade. If we can connect another 4 billion people, and particularly if we can connect people who live in rural communities and bring them into the wealth creation, I think, and enable them to, to participate more and have more conversation, that has to be better for our society as a whole.
0: Uh, is there a limit what AI can do? Because it seems to me it has the capability of uh, creating all types of art from writing to music and from you know, reading this in your book. And so you know, will spy novelists not be necessary anymore because AI can create the most amazing spy novels? Will they be writing the music of the future? Because now <laughs> they've inherited all the past music and they can pull from everything. And, and they say uh, in music, there's very little new it's just the wording might be new, but there, there are only a few chords anyway that anybody plays. I live yes. with a musician.
1: Yeah, that's true. And so I, I think, so the, the, what's inherent in your question is, can AI create art? Mm-hmm. And I think to answer that question, we have to define what is art? You know, art is not just colors on a palette. It is conveying human emotion and it, it has intention in it. There's something that the artist is trying to communicate through that art, whether it is a piece of music uh, or a video they put together or a painting. And so AI has neither emotion nor intention. So I would argue that that AI probably will never create art if that's our definition, but it can certainly create things that mimic art, that are a very close approximation. Um, and, And AI is a helpful tool that can partner with an artist and take them to new places or to auto generate music that can support a background mood now there's a company called uh, life Score music and they auto generate music to match a particular mood so it can be used in video games um, but it can also be used in your car so depending on how you feel today it could be a background soundtrack in your car mm-hmm. so we can get close but i don't think it ever replaces art because Art says something about now or the future, um, whereas AI is just reflecting artistic efforts of humans in the past.
0: Uh, You mentioned in your book that we could learn uh, from
1: AI. Give us an example. So um, AI can be used, it's just about augmented work. Um, It can be guided to show us what to do next, or it can be guided to show us possibilities. There's this idea of generative design, uh, which comes out of Autodesk. Autodesk has embraced this in their tools. And for designers and architects um, and engineers, they use these tools and they might design, I'll make it up, um, a valve. And that valve, they might have come up with a couple of different versions of it. The AI can take those designs and riff on them and create hundreds or thousands of variants and run them through simulation and help guide the designer to say, hey, if you designed it this way, it would be 20% cheaper to make. If you design it this way, it'll be 30% stronger tensile strength. Uh, If you design it this way, it'll be able to fit into this gap much better. So you can start to partner um, AI and we can learn from that. So the AI will teach the designer essentially new ways to design things very often, um, what comes out of the collaboration of the two is designs that are more beautiful, uh, stronger, cheaper, um, you know, just better all around. And I think we can learn a lot by using AI as a partner because while AIs don't understand the world, they kind of help us to see the world in a new way. Hey, it's really fascinating. Can you
0: talk about general adversarial networks? It's interesting how AI teaches others. So can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, um, so underpinning that generative design technology just talked about is this AI construct called general generative adversarial networks. And this is the idea of two AIs that work against each other. And by being, having an adversarial position, they learn from each other and get better. So it's a way of training an AI to do pretty amazing things. So these two AIs best each other, and you can think about it There's one AI called a generator AI, which creates content. So it could be an AI that creates pictures, for example. And then a discriminator AI, there's the other AI, that's been trained on real content. So in this case, real pictures. And it, it looks to spot the difference between a real and generated content. And so what it does is you create this feedback loop where the generator is creating content. The, uh, the, the discriminator looks at it and says, yeah, not so good, you know, fail. And then the, the two go in a loop until eventually the generator gets good enough that it can fool the discriminator and creates content that looks realistic. So it is a way of rapidly training an AI on a task. Uh, By training it, and if you if you go and uh, and Google generative adversarial networks or face generator, that's the way that that technology is working. The output is really impressive, and uh, it's going to help us do lots uh, help us solve lots of business problems.
0: Uh, One of the folks wrote here. I've seen a number of large companies struggle with implementing AI, trying to get to market before they really understand what it is and how to develop the
1: technology. Any thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, there's always benefit in being first to market, uh, but first to market with a, a flawed strategy um, or a poor execution is not the right thing to do. So, yeah, it takes time to understand what AI can actually do, what kind of problems you can solve with it, what its limitations are. That's kind of why I wrote the book. So, yeah, you have to be thoughtful about this and deploy AI meaningfully to solve problems, which means you need to bring experts in to help you think that through.
0: Uh, One of the things I worry about myself, uh, because we've been, we saw a lot of it in the last election, we're certainly seeing a lot now, which is how uh, governments are using AI to manipulate group think. How do do we know what's real and what's not anymore? Because we're seeing all these parties uh, start to use it and governments start to use it to influence people.
1: Well, I think my biggest worry is on Fake news generation, right? You know, if we thought that uh, you know there's supposedly a, a troll farm in Saint Petersburg somewhere, with the uh, the Russians um, pumping out you know 100 fake news stories a day designed to try and divide populations, you know, if they can do 100, 200 a day, um, you kind of wonder, well, what's that landscape look like when AI can pump out perhaps a million stories in a day that are designed to uh, to create an emotion in us and move us in one direction or another. So yeah, that is a significant worry. And I'm glad that there are people working on technologies, again, using AI right. that can detect those fake stories and can detect when something is not true uh, based on a root truth. So there are some, uh, some good guys on, on white horses coming, uh, but uh, yeah, it's a significant worry. Uh, in the book, you talk about, there's
0: different types of AI, and I think everybody just groups AI into one big, um, you know, uh, one technology, but it's actually multiple uh, types of technology. So can you give the uh, audience a little bit, uh, school them a little bit on the different types of AI?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's different ways of looking at it. So there's, there's narrow general super, Um, which let's hit that quick and get it out of the way. So narrow AI is an AI that's really good at doing one task uh, and really one task only. And it can do it as well as a human. So think about the AIs that can listen to your voice. I'm not going to say their name because I've got one listening right back there. Um, But uh, or AIs that can filter your spam or AIs that can play chess. You know, the chess AI cannot filter your spam and the spam filter AI cannot play chess. They're good at one thing. Every AI that exists today is, called, is, an, is a narrow AI. It's good at doing one thing. Um, the next step up is general AI. So artificial intelligence that is good enough to do most things as well as a human could do. We're still a long, long, long way from that. And you don't get a general AI by taking a bunch of narrow AIs and bolting them together. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. So general AI is the, this, uh, the next big... Um, aspiration for the AI community and beyond that is super AI, which is an AI that is better at everything than a human would be. And that could be 1% better, or it could be a million times better. And that, you know, that's the stuff of science fiction, uh, right now, but that's sort of where we're headed in the very, very long term. Other ways to think about it. Uh, there's, uh, there's sort of AI that's good at finding patterns in oceans of data. Uh, patterns that humans wouldn't see, and using that to help us figure out um, insights, business insights, typically, that help us make better decisions. There's reinforcement learning, where an AI is trained and learns through experience. So uh, you can train AIs to play games using reinforcement learning. Uh, Robots are trained how to walk better or to manipulate objects with robot hands better by getting feedback in this reinforcement learning loop. And then the final flavor is generative adversarial networks, which we already talked about, where two AIs battle against each other to learn quickly.
0: Uh, so let's now talk about the Internet of Things. Uh, what's meant by this Internet of Things and how is it used now and where will, we, where will it have the greatest impact?
1: So the Internet of Things is really about leveraging cheap computing and sensors to make objects and infrastructure intelligent and connected. Uh, so it usually involves you know, sensors and really it's, it's to make the world, the physical world that we live in programmable. Uh, and that creates, means creating control loops. So what you're doing is you're, you're measuring something and making a decision. You measure it again, make a decision. So I'll give you an example. Um, maybe you would uh, use sensors inside a jet engine to um, manage its operation and make it optimally um, operating. Or you could use it to control an intelligent sprinkler system. So that's probably the simplest example I use in my book, which is, you know, you have a sprinkler system. Typically there a dumb system, runs on a timer, comes on at a certain time of day and waters your lawn. If you have a moisture sensor in the soil, then you can figure out if the soil is already wet because it rained a few hours ago, I don't need to water today. So I'm making a decision there in a control loop. I can get even more intelligent and connect my sprinkler to a soft sensor, Soft sensor is an example would be the weather report. So now, yeah, the soil is dry, but the weather report tells me the heavens are about to open 15 minutes from now. So I don't need to turn my sprinklers on. So typically The Internet of things allows us to semi automate the operation of infrastructure of objects and to make objects far more intelligent and more responsive to human needs.
0: So, so what's the uh, future, uh, current and future use of sensors now? I and mean, what, what are we going to see for the future?
1: Um, well, the main thing, the main reason to use sensors in a business context is to get eyes on your business, to know what is happening in your business in real time so that the digital world can understand what's happening in the physical world and act upon it. You know, um, Starbucks in China, they use the Wi-Fi hotspot as a sensor to count how many devices, you know, how many mobile phones are in the store. Usually it's one phone equals one person. So that lets them know how many people are in the store in real time. And they use that to control the music system. So if the, if the store is kind of quiet, then they put on a bit of chill out music, bit of Sinatra, you know, sit down, have a cup of tea, have a nice piece of cake. Um, if the store is busy, a lot of people, they turn the volume and the tempo up and they get people in and out of the store. Money, money, money. So it's, it's about using sensors to optimize business processes. Now, longer term, I think the future of sensors is creating super sensors. What, what I mean by that is using AI to turbocharge a sensor to enable us to see more than we could see ourselves. Um, if a good example, um, if you use a radio frequency sensor, there was one that was developed by MIT, um, radio frequency that sends out a radio frequency signal and then signal bounces back signals tend to go through walls but bounce back off people so you can create a sensor which you know you look at the results that come back and it's just a blur of of data but an ai can learn from that and it can figure out what's what's hidden in those signals in this case at mit they were able to create a sensor that not only can see people walking around and they're using this in a um, uh, an elderly care facility. Um, so you can monitor if someone has fallen over, you can monitor, are they sleeping, standing, resting? Uh, but more importantly, they're able to monitor someone's heart rate and someone's breathing wirelessly, and even to monitor their sleep states. And that's important because it lets them monitor the health condition of patients completely wirelessly. So those are the types of breakthroughs that I think are coming, is that pairing of a sensor with AI to see the world an entirely new world, to so lift the veil of reality and help humans see the world in all its complexity.
0: So let's talk about robots a little bit. What's the current state of robots for personal use and will we experience what the Jetsons did? Because I always remember people saying, oh, robots are going to be great. You'll be able to relax more. But the fact yeah. is, they don't, the business doesn't need you because they have the robots. So what would they be paying you for? So. What are robots going to mean to us from a business standpoint and from a personal standpoint? Uh, uh, you know, are they going to become the babysitters for the elderly who are sick yeah. and, and so forth?
1: Yeah, let's do personal first. So we're still a long way. You know, there's a long way from Roombas to Rosie the robot in the Jetsons, uh, or even Bender in Futurama, depending on you know when you grew up. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and the the major challenges there that are stopping that happening. Are cost uh, and mechanical weight and strength. You know, to create a robot that's strong enough, it's going to be really heavy. Uh, and if you create something that's really heavy, it can't move very easily. Uh, I'm going to, have to do my old robot moves from the yeah. 1980s now. That's pretty cool today. Yeah. Um, so the capability of robots is just not there yet. Um, and there's significant mechanical limitations. And they also don't have very good dexterity. So, you know, in terms of a robot that can do the washing up. We're still a ways from that. We've got a dishwasher, but in terms of being able to handle you know, delicate objects and wash them up for us, we're, we're a ways away. So we need some advancements in dexterity. And they're coming um, AI is being trained inside simulations to do that, again, something I mentioned in the book. But we've got a ways to go. In a business context, I'm seeing robots show up in every industry, everything from construction to uh, agriculture to healthcare. care. Um, because these are, these are taking on jobs that are repetitive, sometimes dangerous, uh, certainly boring, um, and things that require repetition and stamina, um, you know, offloading humans so that they can focus on the things that only humans can do. So you know, if you are building a brick wall, get a robot on the job, but to strike it and make sure it looks good, you need a human to do that. So intelligently pairing robots and humans is the best way to think about building the workforce of the future. I have to say the robots are really needed now to pick all the fruit.
0: I mean, when I was reading the Wall Street Journal, and there could be a billion dollars worth of wasted fruit and the price of fruit could go really high for all of us. I mean, there are things that because of, uh, you can't bring large groups of people together, this is where robots are really gonna come in handy for people.
1: Yeah, and and picking fruit is not a fun job. It's backbreaking work in the hot sun. Um, and robots are getting really good at it now. They can pick apples, straw- they pick soft fruit, which is strawberries and raspberries. And you know they can do it at night, which is the best time to pick this fruit because it's cooler and you're less likely to bruise the fruit when you pick it. So it's pretty amazing the robots that have been developed just in the last three or four years that can pick a variety of different fruit types. And you even see um, breeders creating new breeds of, of apple trees so that the canopies of the trees are broader, so the robots can get underneath and pick the apples more easily.
0: Well, and I guess right now, uh, the people who don't have education, who are looking at those as jobs, that there are starter jobs for them to enter the US or whatever it is, they still have somewhat of a lead on the robot because the robot's still so expensive, right? I mean, to building these things, yeah. you really need, need it for, to generate uh, a lot of, work being done in order to justify the cost. Yeah, these things ain't
1: cheap. And that's why when you see these studies that say, you know, 40% of US jobs are at risk of automation, they don't say they will be automated. It's say they are at risk of automation, which means it's possible to automate them. But the reality is humans might work for cheaper. So drones. They scare me. I, I
0: worry about another nine eleven 11 because there's so many of them. They're not really, you know, the government's just starting to kind of regulate them and making sure we know who has what drone and so forth. I, is that an unrealistic fear about drones? I mean, my gosh, uh, you know, Amazon's gonna start dropping packages off uh, if they, I think they've already started experimenting with that using drones, but you know, anything can happen. I mean, the positive about drone is that, hey, when my daughter goes out in the day, I can have the drone follow her all night, um, at, which she probably won't like, but it would be nice. But the other part is easy for assassination and some other things. So what, what's your take on drones and the future of them?
1: Well, like any powerful technology, Mark, it, it's the more powerful the technology is, the more powerful good things it can do, and the more powerful bad things we need to worry about. And drones, you know, certainly there's some things we need to worry about. Um, If only for privacy reasons, you know, these typically are flying cameras. Um, Do we really want those filling the skies in our residential areas? You know, I lived in downtown Portland. Um, Do I want to look out my window and see Amazon drones buzzing by constantly making noise outside my window? I I don't think I do. So what this is going to require is a societal conversation, a cultural conversation to say, what's the world that we want? Do we want to have Amazon packages whizzing by our windows all day long? You know, um, do I want pizzas being delivered to my, I live on the 11th floor. Do I want to, you know, to have, going to stand out on my balcony and have a pizza delivered. I, I don't know. I don't think I do. Now that said, drones have many legitimate, really high value applications. This is the good side of it. Um, agriculture. There's a ton of applications from spraying to you know, monitoring the fields, uh, even wrangling cattle. Um, a lot of maintenance applications uh, for pipelines and and solar panels inspection, um, security, and a lot of first responder stuff. So, you know, use them for rescue, for firefighting, um, and ultimately, you know, these things are going to grow up, and we're going to have passenger drones that can whiz us to the airport for a connection much more quickly than you know, trying to fight through the tunnel out of uh, Manhattan on a Friday afternoon. So they will have uses. We need to think very carefully about how we want them to show up in our society and what restrictions we need to place on their use.
0: I kind of think maybe the drones are going to be good, that pilots in warfare, less dying, uh, probably pilots that are flying our commercial planes with us in it. There only might need to be one pilot. The other one could be sitting back and, and flying it. And then if something goes wrong, you have somebody sitting there. So I can see where there's going to be lots of good stuff. One of the, the next topic I want to talk about is please explain blockchain and what's special about it. Because I think yeah. that's a mystery to a lot of us.
1: Yeah. Um, so blockchain is, you know, I do a two hour talk on blockchain. So let me try and do it for you in a, in a minute or two. Um, blockchain is this mysterious technology, but it's the technology that underpins cryptocurrencies. So things like Bitcoin, that's where it came from. Um, All it is, is a fancy database. It's a way of storing information in a distributed way. Um, And uh, the way that information is stored on a blockchain, and let's explain blockchain, it's blocks of information that are stored and linked together in a chain. That's where the name comes from. So when you put information it's linked to the previous block at the end of the chain and you, you, you uh, you build it out. Those blocks are linked together using military grade encryption. So what that means is once you store information in the chain, it cannot be edited and copies of that information are stored on everybody who's connected into the blockchain network. So it's a way of creating immutable information, which is time-stamped, and that's useful. When you want to be able to track the movement of goods, when you want to be able to track financial uh, transactions. That's why it was created as as the underpinning for a cryptocurrency. And importantly, it is going to help us to build much more trusted transactions on the internet. So thinking about, um, you know, when you sell a house or when you buy stock, you're typically transacting with someone who's a stranger. You don't know who they are. And there's all these third parties involved in this trust industry that make sure that you can feel comfortable parting with your money and that you're gonna get those shares. or You're gonna get that title to the house. Um, Blockchain makes those transactions programmatic. And it's sort of an if then. If I hand over this money, I will get these shares. And so that may mean that transactions certainly become more efficient, but it may mean that the trust industry becomes less relevant over time. So it's gonna gonna make uh, transactions more efficient. It also gives you new ways of creating value. Because when you put data into a blockchain, it generates these tokens, these cryptocurrencies, and you can use those to incentivize people in the way that they participate. So if you created, um, I'm trying to think of an example here. I mean, you, you're essentially creating a value on top of a blockchain and the tokens that it's generating are like shares. So that example I mentioned a few minutes ago about someone generating a, a payment company with only six employees and a and 100 who were remote workers who were participating, they were getting tokens generated by creating value on this blockchain, almost like shares in the future value of what they were creating. So they were not being paid in traditional terms, but it's, it creates these new financial models that enable you to create value in distributed ways. So that's my two minutes explanation, uh, but you know, if you wanna know more, uh, read the book uh, or hire me and I'll talk to you for an hour or two about blockchains.
0: Well, I see that it cuts out many layers of people, yeah. and so it's a cost savings for sure, but I, I can't really understand, and maybe you can explain it, why it can't be corrupted. Because I think if, if it's a database, somebody can program it and change everything and, and it would automatically change everything for everybody else as well.
1: Yeah. So. There's, there's two mechanisms that are in place that stop people editing information on blockchain. The first is that string, the, the fact that things are in a chain. The same way if you were knitting and you drop a stitch, you have to unpick everything to uh, fix that stitch and then re-knit everything together. It's the same with the blockchain. If you want, because of the way that um, the technology works, if you want to change information that's back down the chain, you have to undo all of the cryptographic um, linkage between those blocks, change that block, and then reconstitute everything. That's a lot of computational work to do that. And there are copies of that blockchain on hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of other machines. And there's this thing called a consensus algorithm, which checks all of the the different copies and compares them against each other. And so even if you could edit a few of these blockchains, which would be really, really hard, it would be defeated by the fact that it's distributed on, you know, tens of thousands of machines and they would very quickly identify, Oh, we've been hacked here, push them off the network. This is the, the group truth. So it's a very clever mechanism and it's really hard to defeat.
0: Now, but at the same time, I guess people can put something negative about you and say that, you know, you're a criminal and then now it gets distributed. And now to, you know, that somebody who was, didn't like you and put that out there, now it's yeah. almost like impossible for you to get that all back, not like a newspaper that needs to apologize or a book that's taken off the shelf, right? So that's well, the mean, bad part yeah, of with, that.
1: With, with blockchains, it's good information, good information out. Good information in, good information out. Bad information in, bad information out. So it, blockchains aren't really going to be used for that kind of storage information. It's more for financial transaction data, healthcare records, and so on. And you could, you could edit a bad uh, input by having some information further down the blockchain. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, it is a pretty secure mechanism and it will bring much needed trust to the internet.
0: So uh, why do people think that uh, cyber currency will, will eventually be common? You know, I mean, even JP Morgan's kind of betting on this, but I kind of think they bet on it because they felt like, hey, we got to get ahead of the curve. But at the end of the day, cyber currency is still based on dollars or whatever the denomination is, whatever the currency is. And it's backed by other currencies, it's stolen. So why do people think uh, cyber currency will be common?
1: Yeah, I'm not one of those people, Mark. Um, I I think, of course, yes, they'll be there. Are they they important? Are they going to change the world some people wish they would? I I don't think so. I think blockchains have a lot of interesting applications beyond currency. So being able to store information that's immutable, being able to uh, semi-automate some business processes, um, and being able to create distributed value in new ways and to create a token economy that, that aligns incentives in a value chain. Those are the things that are important and interesting to me. Cyber, cyber, um, securities and, and currencies, in and of themselves, they have some interesting applications for, I mean, JP Morgan's is for for doing settlement between big clients overnight. It's a more efficient way of doing that. But um, are they going to change the world anytime soon? I I don't think so. I think governments are worried about because they're like bearer bonds,
0: you know, uh, that they, it's hard to track uh, this currency. And of course, we saw in Japan where somebody actually robbed $50 million of cyber currency. Um, how are supply chains going to change? Because right now we're really worried about food chain, but it seems with robots and technology, the supply chain would have a remote chance of shutting down. So talk a little bit about how it's, and you talk about this in your book, how are supply chains going to be affected by all these technologies?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I think we've all realized um, acutely in the last few months the importance of supply chains in our, in our personal lives, Right. Um, You know, when coronavirus hit, suddenly deliveries weren't coming in from China and ports were blocked and things were taking a lot longer to get delivered. And we were worrying how we're going to get food into our houses. Um, So, you know, we're very acutely aware of this now. Supply chains, I think every business is looking at their supply chain, figuring out how to build supply resilience, which means, you know, multiple sources, perhaps onshoring some suppliers to make sure that we're not reliant on things being so far flung and disparate, but building uh, better supply chain systems to monitor the flow of goods, to know where things are, to know where things came from, and to be able to track them back to the to their origin. I think you're gonna see consumers demand to know a lot more about the products that they, they buy and the food that they eat. Where did it come from? What did it take to make this? Was child labor involved? Uh, is fair trading? with their suppliers, something that this company cares about or invests in? Uh, Do they have diverse workers? Uh, Do they treat workers with respect? Um, What was the journey that this product took to come to me? How much energy was expended in making this product and bringing it to me? How much water was used? How many greenhouse gases were expelled? You know, really digging in to empower people with information so they can make more informed buying decisions. And what you're going to see emerge in the next five to ten years is provenance chain networks these are using blockchains to be able to track information about where something came from and what it took to make it so that that information can be exposed to brands so when they're buying from their suppliers they have more power over their suppliers uh, and to be able to you know drive compliance and adherence with the standards that they set uh, but also to empower consumers to make better informed decisions so that we know what are the environmental impacts, what are the societal impacts of the products that we buy.
0: So, here's my final question for you. I think many listeners have kids and grandkids going to college. What jobs and in
1: industries should they avoid or embrace? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And it's a great question to end on. So, thank you for asking it. Um, I think there, there's no industry I'd particularly avoid. I mean, truck driving, maybe. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I think every industry is going to continue to thrive. It will just, p- people will work in different ways. So I would answer the question more as instead of what industries to, to gravitate towards or to avoid, what are the skills that we should be building to make sure that we are robot proof? that we remain relevant throughout our working lives. And it's the skills that make us uniquely human. So creativity skills, creative thinking, um, collaboration skills, the ability to work with other people, to team on things, to divide work, to plan together, Um, entrepreneurial skills, uh, human skills, emotion skills, communication skills, the ability to connect with other people and communicate complex ideas. So those are the types of skills that we need to invest in. And that means that, yes, STEM skills are gonna continue to be relevant, but um, the arts, the social sciences, will be more relevant than ever because we need to, to educate people who can think, who can do the things that robots and AIs can never do, which is to understand culture, understand people, and to build things that are in service of people and helping make the world a better place. So it really comes down to education and focus. I think every industry will ultimately flourish in the coming decades.
0: Steve, I, I wanna thank you. And I have to say, everybody should get your book because it's really enlightening about all these different types of technologies that you really need to understand for your own day-to-day uh, use of them, what you're gonna be interacting with and for your um, future in terms of investing uh, for your pensions and so forth. I mean, you really need to really get a good understanding of all, all of these different things. And your book is terrific at doing it and getting it in a layman's way that you. anybody can understand. I appreciate Everyone, that. have a great day. Look forward to seeing you all. And by the way, the, I'm doing an interview with the founder of the Wiffle Ball Company. Well, actually the grandson of the founder of the Wiffle Ball Company. So if you don't know Wiffle Ball, you gotta look into that. It's a standard for American kids. Everybody loves to play wiffle ball. So I'll be interviewing him on Thursday at noon. Have a good rest of your day, everybody. Take care.